When you're deep in a dark dungeon and the cleric's down and dying And you've taken all the potions you had left And you feel like you are doomed because the demon you set loose is coming after you And you can smell its breath Don't ever give up Hello and welcome to the Real Point Exchange. I'm your host, Adam. And joining me today are co-hosts. I'm Noah. And I'm Chris. And uh, today we got a special guest with us. Uh, so, special guest, you care to uh, introduce yourself and uh, tell us uh, what you do? Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Jeff Barber. I uh, design games a little bit on the side, uh, and I'm a high school teacher otherwise, but I, I think I'm here for the game design. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm also a high school teacher, so we could sit here for, you know. That's right. Yeah, we talked about that. Talk shop. So, Jeff, for those uh, unfamiliar with Upwind, give us give us your elevator pitch. Just sum it up for us here. Yeah, um, I, I think it's actually in the Kickstarter, so it might be a giveaway to some of the folks listening. But uh, <laughs> I, Upwind is a really hard game to summarize, and I found myself in the early days of trying to pitch it to people, just blathering on, talking about a bunch of random stuff that didn't really hold together uh, unless you had some grounding in the setting. And I knew when I went off to Gen Con that I, I had to have a pitch because people were going to ask and it needed to be a few words and be done. So this is what I came up with. And actually, people responded really well to it. So I've been, I've been using it since. Imagine um, Ralph Bakshi's classic animated film, Wizards, has a head-on collision with Disney's Treasure Planet. And then we put out the resulting fire with a whole lot of Studio Ghibli, particularly Castle in the Sky. Um, and if you know any of those movie references or, or better yet, a couple of those movie references, you got a pretty good idea of, of what Upwind is. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, that description is like the moment you said that in one of the panels you were at, that just immediately perked up my ears because both, especially Treasure Planet and Studio Ghibli and Castle in the Sky, like those are like some some really kind of like interesting things to kind of pull from, especially for like, you know, inspirations. So Yeah, they're pretty iconic for, for on, on their own, but um, you put them together in a role playing game and it just seems like uh, it writes itself. Yeah, exactly. So, seems like you've had a pretty uh, exciting week so far here. Well, we just launched uh, our new RPG. It's a joint effort between Biohazard Games, uh, that's my company, and uh, Nocturnal Media, which uh, is the new company of, of Stuart Wick, formerly of uh, founder of White Wolf, uh, creator of the, the World of Darkness series. Upwind is a narrative RPG set in a rather strange alternate sort of world where the natural laws aren't quite those that we understand. Uh, it's a world of floating islands and skyships. Uh, it's a place where the Explorer Knights are, are searching out the lost technology, the masters of the wind and defending the kingdoms in the light from the threat of the children of the dark, an ancient enemy that lives well below the kingdoms in the realms known as the twilight frontier. You fully funded your pro this Kickstarter in 13 hours or what yeah, exactly? 13 hours and 13 minutes. I took that as auspicious, uh, you know, <laughs> double lucky number. <laughs> nice. Awesome, man. It looks like so far looking at the Kickstarter, looks like uh, as of the date of this recording, you're up to a little over 15K and we're 5K away from uh, another stretch goal. Yeah, we just broke um, our second stretch goal this morning and uh, at 20,000, we'll, we'll hit the third one. Awesome. So do you care to... Uh, take a moment here and uh, let's go over stretch goals. That uh, sure. Uh, you mean stretch goals as an idea in Kickstarter, or stretch goals specifically for Upwind? A stretch, a stretch goals specifically for Upwind. Sure, sure. So the first one was a uh, illuminated character sheet, which may sound a little strange, but um, as you've played Upwind before, you know that there are several components to keep track of. There's a, a handful of card decks. Yeah. Um, and then uh, ideally there would be some tokens that represent uh, these things that called caches that your character has, basically bonus cards. There are also some consequences that sort of build up for your character, and it's a nice way to – it'd be nice to have ways to track those. Uh, there's also um, a relic that you design, a magical item, a family – heirloom or a or a device that's given to you by the guild that your character gets to use in game but you design that so there's all these features of the character that either need so you need to keep track of or you need help sort of plotting out and the idea with behind this character sheet is to create a very uh, pretty series of pages that allow you to sort of modularize how you want to track this stuff how you want to organize your decks and how you want to track those how you want to keep track of the bonus cards you have access to, and then the rolling consequences that are part of playing the game. Uh, and so we thought it would be fun to be able to offer sort of a PDF 
print print all you wanted character sheet that incorporated a lot of the art and design from from the game itself. So that's the plan with the first stretch goal that was made um pretty quickly. I think uh, by the by the end of the first day or so. Uh, second stretch goal we broke today. It is a uh, poster of the upwind world map that we're designing. The setting is very strange. The world is a three-dimensional sky um, full uh, with, with essentially no boundaries and endless sky full of floating islands and is therefore for some people a little bit challenging to visualize. And we thought it would be really cool to have not only a map that would help people do that, but also a map that looked like a navigator's chart if you were a navigator in this world. And you could use it essentially as a prop in the game. Put it out on your gaming table. People could point to things and plan where they're headed and, and if they had questions about where things were or uh, the relationship between different destinations, they'd be able to kind of see it readily laid out for them. Um, so that's the second stretch goal. The next one is uh, a mini campaign written by uh, Ross Payton of Role-Playing Public Radio. He's been a, a big help in promoting the game, uh, has done a lot of playtesting, has ran, run some APs that he's dropping on RPPR through the course of the Kickstarter, and he seems to be a big fan of the game. In fact, he's talked about um, using the Q rules to create a game of his own. And his uh, little mini campaign, he's calling Three Beasts, is the working title. And he's going to be working on that if we can make uh, 20000 The next after that, I believe, is 25000 which is going to be sort of a... Remember those old playing cards and posters from, from World War II that would help mm-hmm. um, soldiers identify enemy vessels? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or just yeah. identify aircraft yeah. in general from different armies and that kind of thing? We thought it'd be neat to have a poster that allowed sort of each of the nation's different ships uh, and as well as the ships of the children of the dark, the enemy vessels to be given a characteristic profile and appearance as well as sort of the national flags and thing and, and put, put that out as um, an additional resource for the game. So that'd be at 25,000, 30,000. I think it's my favorite stretch goal. We've got um print and play miniature style tactical game that we've been play testing called incursion, which takes the, the, pending war between the Children of the Dark and the, the Explorers Guild and turns it into a, a tactical skyship combat. The thing that makes it perhaps a little different than most sort of aerial combat games is it's actually more akin to an old school submarine combat because it takes place in the Twilight Frontier, this dark, dim world full of clouds and fogs and squalls and not much light. A lot of attention is paid to sort of sneaking around and running dark and making tactical movements. Uh, as you try and seek out your enemy and then make sort of blinding attacks. It's really simple, plays quickly, and because of the fact that it's intended to be print and play, you can build as big of forces as you want to play as, as large a force as you'd like. So we're really excited to see that one. And then the final stretch goal that we've released the um, in terms of um, giving people a heads up is uh, something called TikTok. It's, a, oh, it's an yeah. alternate, alternate setting that I had um, in mind that uh, I realized uh, last year would, would actually be a really good fit for the Q mechanics. And if we can get that far, if we get a 40 grand, then we're going to release that as a uh, PDF, essentially standalone game based on the Q mechanics. Um, and I, and I think that it'll, it'll use those mechanics well, but I also think it'll present sort of a, an, an odd and strange little, little world. Um, I, I think probably the best comparison to make easy pitch for it. If you've ever seen, there's a, uh, an animated film called nine that was done by mm. Tim Burton. Um, yeah. Imagine that um, during character generation, you assemble little clockwork people, mechanisms, organisms, creatures that that um, dwell inside the great mechanism. Uh, and those, uh, Adam, if you remember the, the Q mechanics, there were attributes um, that your characters had. Well, instead of individual attributes, those simply would be um, laid out over like heads and limbs and torsos and that sort of thing, each one having particular abilities. Uh, then your characters would would be assembled during character generation, and and play through this this world of the of the, of the uh, great mechanism that's being um, threatened by Worm Gear and, and his gearlings. Um, and the whole the whole idea is to sort of live through this this wind up prophecy that's all part of the setting. Yeah, um, very cool. In typical RPG exchange, I tend to put the card in front of the horse. So. Jeff, Upwind is definitely your latest project, but this is definitely not your first project. What's, uh, what previous projects have you worked on? And like, what's um, your- well, I, I got into the industry um, with Pagan Publishing. I was one of the founding members of, of that group back when, the, when the, we did the Unspeakable Oath. Uh, and so I was working mostly on Call of Cthulhu projects back then. When I parted away with, with them, I wanted to, to sort of stay in the industry, but 
you know, this was back in the nineties and, and things worked a lot differently. If you wanted to be in the industry, you kind of had to write a game, uh, either that or, or tag on with someone who already had. And the, the, the social, social media was in its infancy and it was really, you know, hard to do that if you didn't have personal relationships with people already. I had an idea for a game. Uh, it's what eventually became Blue Planet. That, that game did much better than we ever expected that, that it, it should or any that we really had any right to think it, it would. And, uh, and that was sort of, I guess if I, if I have a, a flagship in my library, it's that. I also wrote, uh, the midnight D20 setting for, for Fantasy Flight. The, I wrote the, the main, the core book for that and, and the campaign. There were a lot of books after that I didn't have much to do with anything really. I, I, uh, that was sort of the last big project I worked on. Went on a long hiatus. It'd probably been, I don't know, 10 or 15 years now since I actually published anything. Upwind has been, in the back of my head for, for quite a while, maybe eight or 10 of those years. And it's been the last couple that I've kind of gotten serious about publishing it. And really the last year and a half that I've put my nose to the grindstone and really tried to, to make this thing happen. Awesome. I mean, definitely coming back into it full swing. It's been really, it's been really um, interesting, challenging, different, fun. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the industry is totally different. Uh, the social media is so much more diverse now. I mean, back when I was doing Blue Planet, listservs were the cutting edge of <laughs> of, of social media. That was it, right? But now uh, it's been an education in in just how to stay, how to get and stay connected with people in ways that I never really did before. I mean, I, I didn't have a Twitter account until six months ago, <laughs> a year, eight months ago, and and now I'm you know on it ten times a day, trying to trying to keep connected and and promote the yeah. game. Seems like social networking or just social networks in general definitely playing a much harder role. If we've already hit how many you mentioned a moment ago, but there's the social stretch goes have already unlocked several different yeah. things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, really, Kickstarter itself is is kind of a social network. Right? Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't exist without the same technology and the same same intention that's driving it. And honestly, that's one of the things that attracted me to it. I love the idea of crowdfunding. I think. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the uh, next evolution in economy and manufacturing that I just wanted to really kind of be a part of. And it's been really fun participating. As you've mentioned, there's several animated films that's kind of in, inspired you to uh, do this. Is that where you got at least most of the inspiration for this fantasy setting? It's just... Um, not 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 originally, or or maybe well, I guess the answer is yes and no. the The idea for this the the setting of floating islands really came from an experience I had um, when I was hiking. Uh, actually, I um I lived in Hawaii for for a while. My wife and I taught at a, a school there, and up behind the school was a, a they called it a mountain, but it was more like a big hill. But it was on the side of Mauna Kea, which is actually a very big mountain and I, and I just hike up there for exercise. And, and one day I'm standing at the top looking out and, and uh, you can see, you'd normally could see the ocean, but this particular day, the sky was this weird kind of slate gray color as if th- there weren't individual clouds. It was just sort of this hazy, hazy sky, but the ocean was perfectly still and reflecting that hazy color. So you could see the shore of the island, but you couldn't really see that there was water. It just looked like the island was floating in a cloud. And it just, the image stuck with me. And I, I kept thinking, well, that, what, if, what if the whole world was just a, a floating islands? And of course, being a game designer and always trying to think of new settings for games, I just thought, wow, what if, what if the setting was made up of floating islands? What, what would the rest of the world be like? And how could you make it an interesting role-playing game? You know, if you're familiar with Studio Ghibli, they're, he Miyazaki's kind of obsessed with weird flying machines. Oh yeah, definitely. And everything you know in, in Castle in the Sky, in particular, you've got this giant island floating um, above the ground, uh, and then in things like Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, there's all these strange flying machines, and and everyone's having all this air combat. And, and I, I actually hadn't ever heard of Studio Ghibli until that time in my life, and and so seeing some of those movies and getting hooked on those. And combining it with this idea just seemed like uh, it was an easy combination to make. Um, a lot of Miyazaki's work has to deal with nature and animals and like the the world we live in. And I've noticed that that kind of uh, reflects in uh, Upwind. Like you you have a uh, you have bulky mouths, you have the strange ecologies, and that that just always that I'm, I'm a biologist by training, so that fascinates me. Well, actually, so am I. Uh, I have a master's in wildlife ecology, and uh, oh, awesome. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Blue Planet, um, which was the first 
real yes. big game that I did, but it's got a really rich ecology because that was sort of what I, what I knew. And, you know, your English teachers are always telling you when you're you know, right, what you know. Um, <laughs> and, and, and ecologists, I think find ecology and, and the creatures that, that make it up really interesting. But if you get to write all your own, then you can be twice as interesting, right? You can, yeah. create, <laughs> you can create sort of the, the science fiction and the fantasy elements of it. And, and I'm inspired by a lot of that. And so I, I've, by default, put it into a lot of what I've written. And of course, it's going to end up in, in upwind as well. I think the creatures are, I've tried to be pretty kind of fantastical with some of them, but, it, but yeah, there's definitely a, a thread of that. Um, yeah, but it's, it's fantastical, but believable. Like you, I can actually see this sort of ecosystem is working. That's, that's just something I, I appreciate. So. I, mean, I, I guess that's my sensibility. Um, yeah. I, if, I, there, I if there sorry. are like floating islands and stuff like that, this is how right. like the <laughs> exactly. creatures and animals and <laughs> sure. all that would work with. If you can accept the initial premise, then yeah. here's, here, here's what flows out from it. And really, I mean, that's what world building is, right? I mean, you, could, exactly. you pick one, you pick one fact and then everything interconnects to that. And as an ecologist, then the, the ecology hopefully is feels at that level of suspension of disbelief feels the same. Now you've got me wanting to, to write a Charles Darwin ish campaign where you just go through the many islands and in the, the upwind world and discover. Oh, that'd be perfect. Um, yeah. in, in fact, in all of the write-ups and all of the promo material and even in the content of the book itself, warrior and soldier always comes at the end of the list of things like explorer, scientist, engineer, right? So the, the idea is that the, the explorer knights are all of these things and they are reluctant warriors when they have to be. But ultimately they're, they're, you know, they're searching through the twilight frontier in search of knowledge, um, not enemies. I wanted to, to ask you this and to uh, just switch gears a little bit to the actual Q, Q system, Q mechanic. Sure. First off, I hope those that listen to the show have already checked out the uh, Gen Con game there, but it was one of the first things that, made, that struck me about the, the game of Upwind is, and it was actually the first thing we really talked about, it seems like, in this podcast was the character sheet, and it, it amazed me that there was a utility to the character sheet other than keeping track of stats and so forth. And that, that was one of my, my first big impressions of how it worked. So can you go into how did the Q system come about? When did you decide to stray away from traditional methods of dice and move to playing cards? Well, it, kind of a, a silly story at this point, but it, uh, it's true. Um, I have terrible dice luck. I have the worst dice luck ever. Um, and everybody says that. And I know everyone's probably smiling. Like, oh, yeah, I got bad dice luck too. Um, but with me, it's uncanny. You know, I think every gamer wishes that the world had magic in it and, or at least had some sort of something so that was supernatural. And this is the one thing in my life that I can claim is supernatural is just how bad my dice luck is. Uh, it's gotten to the point where I've got a reputation. You know, people are always kidding me about it and the people I game with are, you know, they just sort of expect it. And so even, even though my intention really wasn't to avoid using dice and I'm not superstitious, it, it, I thought it'd be refreshing to come up with a um, mechanic that hung on something other than dice. And I had played in some, some games that, that attempted to use dice differently. And I thought it would be neat to sort of marry the idea of, of um, other randomizers to a, a new game system. At the same time, I was trying to come up with a, um, another kind of mechanic that allowed bidding of resources uh, I thought it'd be neat to have a game where you would knew just how much, you know, go juice you had at the beginning of the session and you could spend it through the course of the session to, um, you know, power whatever your character was trying to do. And between those two things, between trying to find a, another sort of randomizer and trying to figure out a way that you could bid resources, I realized, of course, there's lots of games, ca traditional card games that use cards as a resource of points and a way to track those points and a way to generate those points and a way to measure them as you, as you spend them. So fiddling with cards sort of just ha sort of happened naturally. The actual mechanic of upwind really, if you look at it at its heart, it's not that different than the, the, the numerical mechanic. It's not that different than war. You're basically bidding um, scores of, of, of hands of cards against, against your opponents and, and just really seeing who, who, can, who can generate the highest score um, using the mechanics. When I originally used it, it wasn't, I'm sorry, uh, when I originally, originally play tested it, it wasn't actually part of Upwind. It was just a, a sort of mechanics idea I had. And I actually, the first time we played it, I just set it in the, in the Blue Planet setting. We played a Blue Planet game using these alternate rules. 
and it was fun when it uh, dawned on me that that upwind which a big part of the backstory of upwind depends on the uh, elementalism sort of traditional elementalism of earth and air and and fire and water when i realized that those four elements could match up or map over the four suits of a card deck it was a no brainer to combine that mechanic system with the upwind setting and um that that marriage has actually been really productive because there's a lot of other things about the card deck that i've been able to integrate into the mechanics of of the game and now it's as if they were born together um, and were never separate. In my brief experience with Upwind, it, it reminded me of uh, like just ho- holding the cards and you know placing your bets and so forth. It, it really just almost seems like, and I mean, and these things are two to- totally different things, but it seemed like a. It reminded me of like the gumshoe system and how you had points to spend and all that. So I yeah, could, absolutely. If I have my Joker card, which if I'm not mistaking from my memory of the uh, game, that's pretty much your trump that you could lay down. And unless the uh, GM has a Joker card as well, then that's an automatic success. So, like, do I blow it on this hand or this? Uh- yep, exactly. Yeah, that that's a, a good comparison. In fact, um, th- I think there are a lot of similarities between spending points from Gumshoe and and playing the points in Upwind. The the Biggest difference being that in Gumshoe, everybody knows the points, the points that you have. Whereas in in um, Upwind, they're played they're played as blind bids, so that there's a little bit more of a I don't want to say competitive because that's not the intention, but there's a little more of um, the unexpected. Yeah, uh, that there there is a random element there that isn't entirely in control of the the player and the moderator. Definitely adds to the tension. But on the other hand, and and that's really the design intention, uh, what has become the design intention behind uh, the Q system. There's a lot of meta control that the players and the moderator can exert on the outcome. In fact, there's a lot of places in the in the rules where this is addressed. But you've got a lot more control. And with a die, with a, rolling a die, you you get a, a number that either succeeds or fails. It's it's uh, incremental. There's nothing you can do about it. Sure, you can add some bonuses or what have you. But whatever the die says um, determines whether you succeed or fail. You don't get to control that roll. But with the dice or with the cards, you can actually decide, do I want to really play a lot of points on this? Do I want to hold back and, and hope it's good enough? Or do I want to get rid of some dud cards and, and take whatever consequences come of this so that I can get some better cards for later? You can actually nudge and fudge in a way that you can't really do with dice. And from the perspective of the moderator, that's great. I mean, because we've all, we've all run games where we fudge the dice because we want something to happen or we want the players to succeed or um, we want a, a particular element of the game to be featured. In this Fudging is part of play. It's encouraged and, and intentional, and both the moderator and the players can do it to kind of nudge the, the narrative in the direction they want to go. And um, that allows for a lot of agency on the part of the participants that doesn't exist in, in a lot of dice mechanics. Very cool. I mentioned the utility of the, the character sheet was the first thing I noticed. And I, I tell you, another really creative thought, uh, part I thought of your new system, which, I mean, the character sheet's just, I mean, it was just neat to be able to track everything. But uh, I was struck with how you could use cards to not only represent points and abilities that you had, like points that you had to spend towards achieving a goal, but you also used it for keeping up with hit points. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or I don't know if, if hit points are the best sort of comparison, but yeah, the health of the characters, their their vigor, vitality, and 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 not just that, but their conditions as well. Are they are they exhausted? Are they hungry? Are they are they um are they have they been drugged? Uh, are they drunk? That sort of thing. Yeah, your your hand your hand of cards when your when your character is healthy and unaffected, you play with six cards. But as your character takes injury or is otherwise penalized your hand goes down. So it's harder to have good cards to be effective and rep, sort of modeling a character's inability to to um, be as effective and under the circumstances of the penalty. Really cool. It was, um, you know, it's one thing looking at a number on a sheet of paper, but it's another thing holding two fewer cards in your hand that, that kind of, you know, drive home the point that things aren't going so well for you at the moment. Yeah, there is a tactical element to it, right? I mean, it, tactile, I mean, in, in the hand that, that doesn't let you forget that you're hurt. One thing I find particularly inspired for your concept or for your system is the use of face cards. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that each face card has its own specific associated, like, narrative and mechanical conception. Like, where did you come with that? Where, where did you come up with that? can't remember the 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 specific impetus i don't remember the day where i went hey 
but it was it was that it was kind of just a realization um i think if you look at the the deck and the numbers that we, we try different values for different cards right so uh, some some traditional card games give different values to the different face cards but we settled on them all being worth 10 points um but in in that we wanted them to also have some other function so i was really just searching after ways to give the different um face cards something that was not just numerically different, but also different in terms of the context of the game. And um, because face cards always seem to represent people, in my mind, whenever I look at cards, right, they've always got a picture of a person on them, and the, the names are evoke different qualities, uh, you know, king, queen, jack. It, it felt like there should be a way to make them, make that feature that everyone sort of readily identifies in cards part of the, the game to inform the narrative. and And so that's, sort of where the idea came from and and it's turned out to be a, a real benefit. I think what you're referring to is crowning mm-hmm. and how um if you use a a king for example, it's worth 10 points, but if you use it in a circumstance where your characters are trying to be noble or commanding or it's a matter of leadership or martial ability, you get to draw a bonus card. Similarly, you can crown with a queen, so if it's a circumstance where it requires wisdom or charisma or healing, or compassion, um, you can draw a bonus card. Jacks represent nefarious doings, you know, sneaky, subterfuge, those sorts of things. And aces represent uh, a crown for any circumstance. Um, they're kind of a wild card in that regard. Right. Um, but yeah, it, that those cards in themselves have proven to be through um, the term, you know, the, the idea of emergent play. Um, you start doing, um, you put that rule in play and it, and it seems pretty simple, but when people start to see what they can do with it, they start to manipulate the circumstances. Oh, I've got a king in my hand, so I'm going to try and solve this circumstance, resolve this encounter using leadership because then I know I can crown it. I'm not going to try and be sneaky. So there's that m- meta element to, to, um, to the game that comes from, from this crowning mechanic that's proven to be really fun in emergent play. I don't remember if this was on a podcast that I heard this or if this was something that uh, Ross Payton had mentioned in my presence or to me at Gen Con, but remember him uh, mentioning that he could breeze through massive Nyarlathotep or Hotep using the Q system and, you know, relatively easy. And I, c- I can see that set the stage for me here, Jeff. Uh, you're, you're probably better to do this than I. How like are we? How does actions work in Upwind? How did you play out a scene? For example, I played in a Delta Green game last night with Noah, and we were rolling dice and doing stuff for twenty or thirty minutes until that uh, scene resolved. How does that? How does uh, Upwind handle combat and actions in general? Yeah, it, it does play very quickly um, because it it, it revol- resolves entire encounters in in a single play rather than incrementally. That's probably the the fundamental conceit of the game of the mechanics of the, the fundamental mechanic itself. Rather than incrementally play through an action scene where I I draw my sword, I move to this square, I I swing and I hit or miss, and then I defend, and then I roll die again, and I swing or hit or miss, and then defend, and you do this you know for ten fifteen turns. In, in upwind, you come to the encounter, whether it's a fight or, or a, um, exploration or, uh, a, a social encounter or, um, uh, an attempt to deceive somebody, they all work the same way. It, you just make a single play and, and resolve the entire encounter. You can change the scale. So you can say that, you know, I'm, I'm fighting this guy and I, and I want to take out this one individual. Or you can say I'm, I'm fighting this ship and I want to take out the whole, the whole crew or I'm fighting this fleet and I want to take out the whole fleet. Uh, so you can change the scale of those encounters, but they all still resolve in, in a single play if you want them to. You can also break those up into individual ones if you wish, but then it, it draws the game out uh, um, more like an incremental system. But let's just give, give an example, really. So let's say um, your your character is on the deck of a, of a skyship and uh, an enemy vessel comes charging out of the, the clouds, cannons blazing. You are in command of the vessel. You would role play through however you want to manage that encounter. So give me an example. How would you want, in those circumstances, what would your character want to do to to resolve the encounter with this enemy vessel. I would fly the surrender flag or colors, uh, lure the ship in closer, and then try to do a quick barrage on them, hopefully catching them. Perfect. That's an excellent example. So so basically, um, you, you narrate what you want to do, 
And we encourage the moderator to let that narrative sort of stand until you get to the dramatic point in that, right? So I would describe how the ship barrages you and then you run up this false flag. Um, their lookouts spot it. They, they slowly drift in broadside coming to bear on you. You can see the, the pirates crowding the rail, um, weapons in hand. You can see their gun crews have reloaded and they're ready to blast you. And so we build the tension in the narrative. And then I say, okay, let's make a play. And your character, unlike characters that draw their, their skills from, from lists, um, the, the skills and abilities called attributes. So your skills, abilities and, and supernatural powers called potential in upwind are created by individual players, a lot like the aspects that you find in, in a fate system. Um, so your character may have something, for example, uh, you may have an attribute um, that you've decided your character is, 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 a, is a sneaky kind of guy, and you have an attribute, uh, something simple like clever boy. You decide, I'm going to use clever boy um, in this false flag operation, and that's the stat you're going to play. It's got a number of, of cards that you're allowed to play, one, one, two, or three. And let's say that your character um, has a three in Clever Boy. You would play your three cards. I would assign a challenge level to it. We would then negotiate stakes. You would tell me what you wanted out of this play. So go ahead and tell me what you might want out of this, this encounter. So you told me how you're going to do it. Now tell me what you want the end result to be. I wanted to, I want our quick turn to violence to be so quick that we really don't have to turn it into a bloody battle. It's just a quick reversal of roles and the other crew surrenders the ship and, you know, everything without much need of bloodshed. Okay. So you want your, your, your own barrage to, to have be so sudden that it stuns them into surrender is yep. what I'm hearing. Um, yes. maybe it does sort of some, some critical, um, damage to their vessels so that they have to struggle just to keep it in the air and, and can't can't fight back. Now, we can leave it at that, which ultimately sort of amounts to a success or a failure with a little bit of descriptor, or we can up those stakes a little bit. And and that's sort of what determines whether uh, it's a one, two, or three card challenge on my part. And it also allows us to build out story. So what else might you want out of an encounter like this? What else could you imagine happening as a result of sort of stopping these pirates um, with a single barrage? Do you want to take them prisoner? Do you want to kill their officers? Do you want to send them fleeing um, and spreading a, a reputation that you guys aren't to be messed with? Um, do you want to convince them that you're better pirates and that the, yeah. they'll now um, join your your cause and be uh, agents of your fleet? Uh, you can anything you can imagine really could be piled on as stakes. Yeah, I think I would try to go for that private York World War. I think World War One or whatever. I'll try to get a mass surrender and then turn them over to the authorities for. Okay, so let's say that um, you, if you succeed, you'll stun them into an action. They'll all be be forced to surrender by your superior position, um, and because you bring in a, a ship effectively single handedly like that, you'll gain a reputation that will follow you around. And I'll give you uh, what's called a cache, a story cache that is essentially a, a, a reputation that you can cash in in any circumstance where being this famous, this famous battle or what will become a famous battle could be used to your advantage. We, we, um, decide which cards we're going to play. You play them in, in the suit that you have assigned to Clever Boy. You can play however many, um, by the value of Clever Boy. We said it's a three card attribute on your part. So you go through, let's say it's, let's say you've got assigned to clubs. You pick the clubs that you want to play. Let's say you have, uh, well, let's just say for convenience, you have a, a king in clubs. You can play that and crown it because it's a martial situation. So you get a bonus card for having had the king. I can, I, I think this is a pretty big deal. You're taking a whole ship with a single action. So I'm going to tell you it's a three card challenge level. So I'm going to play three cards. I also have some bonus cards that I can use uh, as the moderator. I, I have, depending on how many people are playing, I have some, some cash cards that fit into three categories, a plot, opposition, and a setting. And if the circumstances fit in one of those three categories, I can play a cash from that, but I have a limited number. And uh, we lay out the cards just like we're playing war. The total scores determine who the victor is. The gap between the scores determines sort of what level of success is. Was it by the skin of your teeth or was it with great flash and, and panache that you were able to pull this off? And then whatever stakes we negotiated are the stakes that, that are played. So if you win, the stakes are just as we described for you. If 
oh, you know what? I skipped a step. We didn't describe the, the counter stakes. So you give me your stakes, then I would give you counter stakes. Something like uh, they don't fall for it. As soon as they pull in close, they're going to blast you guys and disable your ship. And you're going to have to crash land on a nearby island. Let's say that's what the stakes we negotiate. So if if I win, then that's what happens. And that's the narrative just turns left or right to follow your stakes or follow my stakes, to follow your outcomes or my outcomes. And that's how the narrative progresses. There's no mitigating those stakes. That's what happens. Yeah. And the story continues and we move forward from there. It really does promote a organic story to develop out of ideas that I noticed that you uh, use the term moderator for, for that uh, individual that's running the game. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know where I picked it up, but I used it in Blue Planet. I use it in all my games. It just feels, I don't know, it feels less yeah. uh, uh, oppositional or less adversarial than Game Master. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah the, the game very much feels like a conversation, less than a, uh, I, I guess, you know, the whole boss player narrative. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's less competitive. That yeah, way. that's for sure. It, the expectation is that you cooperate. If you don't cooperate in, in negotiating the stakes, not only do you lose out a lot of the fun, but it can really bog down the the, the story oh, God, and make yeah. it impossible. It bogged down the game mechanically too, and make it impossible to to do. In fact, we find ourselves a lot. Uh, my local playtest group, we do what's called parallel stakes. So the stakes will be the same, but the fallout for the characters is different. So maybe you, in this last example, maybe you, um, the stakes are you take out the pirates and they, they surrender. Well, maybe my stakes are going to be the same. The pirates surrender, but it turns out they're not pirates. It turns out that they're just refugees from some tyrannical situation. And, uh, in the process of, of attacking them, you've killed a bunch of children who were hidden in the hold. Oh God. Right. So that, that, that would be the stakes I pin and you know, those are coming. And so you see like you win, you win, but now there's sort of a Pyrrhic element to it. Right. So that tells, that's a great story that tells, um, that, it, that those kind of parallel stakes are a great way to sort of inform the narrative on both sides. Yeah. And then back to your original question. So, you know, we, we play our cards and we're done. You've either crash landed on this Island because they, they knew what was up and, and blasted you back or they've surrendered and now you've got a hold full of prisoners. If this was a, a say a game of D and D where two ships have have joined force joined in battle, that's going to be the rest of your session. Now it's going to take four hours to work that battle out to any kind of conclusion where you have you know beaten them into submission with a hundred die rolls, and that's why the system goes so quickly is that you you skip over the part that slows most narratives down, which is the combat. Now a lot of people like that in games. I like games that have crunchy combat sometimes too. So. The QA system is not going to be for everybody or for every kind of game, but it does play very quickly. My best estimate is between three and four times as fast. And as a moderator, you have to have a lot of story to, to, at the table every night. You know, when you, when you plan for a D and D game, maybe you think, okay, they're going to have a little conversation here in the tavern and then they're going to go outside town. They're going to get in a fight. Then they're going to, um, meet this person and they're going to have a little conversation and they're going to have another fight. And that's going to be our night. Right. Because you know that those fights are going to be big. Um, in upwind, you've got to have all of the sort of potential encounters plotted out because, uh, you're going to blast through your story really quickly. And so you've got to come with a lot more preparation. I find myself occasionally whenever I'm running a game and definitely a pre-built, like, you know, published scenario and stuff like that. I find myself getting married, so to speak, to the text. And, and this, this seems like the system here would be a good way of giving your moderator freedom to improvise and like you could walk out with a different game than what you walked in with. Oh yeah, for sure. In fact, um, I I've written the first, the first written scenario, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, as part of our playtest packet, one of our, our social stretch goals is, uh, upwind quick start primer. And we made that. So that'll be released soon. It's just an editing and layout right now, but I had to write, actually write down one of the scenarios that I, um, have been using for, for demos. And I, I realized that you can suggest potential outcomes, which I think will be really helpful, especially to new moderators that haven't played up one before. Uh, so you can give them suggestions of these are, these are um, stakes that the players might want. These are stakes that the moderator might suggest, but because you're going to have a bunch of players around the table and they're all going to have different ideas about what you can have, you can't really give them definitive guidance in what stakes to play. Whereas in uh, other kinds of scenarios with a little more solid incremental system, you can be really specific about what the NPCs do 
and what they do in response to success or failure. So in this write-up, I, I offer suggestions, but I'm also realizing, just like you described, it's not going to survive first contact with the players. As soon as they get to a situation, their collective ideas are going to take it in directions that you weren't expecting, which I think is one of the strengths of the game. I honestly really appreciate how impro- improvisation-heavy this game is, because that that's a lot of what I do as GM. I, I kind of fly by the seat of my pants. Yeah, I, I, um, I think I'm probably personal style somewhere in the middle um i like to have an idea of where the story could be going you know i, I like to have an endpoint to what the characters are trying to achieve i guess i'm not a, a sandbox game master but um i do like them to have agency and so this game allows a little bit for both of those things right you can know where your story's going but how you're going to get there is going to surprise both you and the players right and it, and with this idea of stakes it's challenging at first to come up with interesting things that are beyond just success or failure. If you're going to fight somebody, you know, do you beat them? Do they beat you? Well, everything can be broken down to a success or failure, but that gets a little old and boring after a while. So improvisationally, there's a challenge and a lot of fun in having to come up with new, new and interesting stakes. Um, my, one of my favorites so far happened the other night. I ran for my local playtest group that we're working on the Kickstarter the Kickstarter is not just for the core book. There's a, um, a a custom card deck, but there's also a campaign called the Prophecy of the Grand Amplifier. And uh, it's not a stretch goal. It's actually part of the the base funding. Um, but we've been playtesting that. And the other night, one of the NPCs uh, that I played turned out to be very – well, it's, it's a long story how we got there. But an NPC and a PC suddenly realized they were very interested in each other. And at one point, there was a play where the stakes that I laid out um, should they lose – was that the NPC got pregnant. (laughs) Um, Wow. And, and, you know, you can look all the way through every D and D book out there and you're not going to find a a die roll that will determine whether or not um, one of the NPCs is going to get pregnant. But when that one, but when that, when that, when that um, came up as a stakes, sort of organically, as we were improvising, what could possibly happen as these two became romantically involved the whole table was just like, this is amazing. Like this is a real life consequence, but also an interesting thing and something that we usually don't ever see in other games. It was usually a really great moment that played to the strength of this, of the system and came out in this emergent conversation that occurs whenever you, you negotiate stakes with the players. And of course they're all fired up. They were hoping to lose in that case because they, the table really wanted this to happen. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately it didn't. Um, Same. But, but you know, yeah, it was it was really fun, and it's, it definitely showed a, a sort of a, a feature of of the game that is different yeah. than 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 incremental systems. Yeah, it it definitely sounds like with the the system that you have set up, you can create plenty of really memorable moments at the table. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know one of the podcasts that's been played out. I think it was on RPPR. Uh, they they ended up with a marriage. Uh, one of the stakes was if you if you succeed, then you get the information. If you don't, you end up in a royal in a royal marriage. And now you have this NPC that you know you're part of your your crew your crew and and um, that you are now legally married to. And they lost, and they ended up getting married. And that actually was a great turn in the story uh, that became sort of critical to events that happened later. So. Um, yeah, th- there there are ways. That's probably the best part of of the system. Let's, for example, in a narrative system, you get into a sword fight, or you even have a, um, a a PC that's lying to some NPCs. In the short term, you gain some advantage. You either put down the enemy, or you sneak past the guard because you gave them a, a reasonable lie. With the upwind mechanic, with the Q mechanic, you can create consequences that are life changing, like getting pregnant or getting married, or that follow and that follow the characters into their future as part of who they are and develop them narratively. Um, they can become famous. They can gain new enemies. They can um, learn information that then gets them advantages in the future. Um, there are just there's no end to. Uh, you're only limited by your imagination of the kinds of things you can stack on top of the characters as lasting consequences for their actions, and they can help build those for their own characters because they get to go negotiate those stakes. They can agree to them, add to them, renegotiate them. Um, so there's a, a lot of that improvisation can lead to stakes that they get piled on top and, and carried into the, the future of the characters. Really develop them into something more interesting than where they started. Very cool. When I was looking through the draft uh, 
of upwind that you so graciously sent to us here one of the things that i i, I noticed that like uh you had you definitely had a section on there where you were talking about short-term and long-term consequences for actions there. But uh, I think one of the things that really kind of got to me too is you mentioned like Schrodinger's cat as a, as kind of an analogy here with how how the uh, betting system and actions and so forth work, if I'm interpreting that correctly. No, absolutely. You're, you've got it spot on. Yeah, so you're asking about Schrodinger's cat. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of laughingly when I was – Pitching it at Gen Con, actually, I, I laughingly referred to some of the stake, uh, the mechanic as sort of the Schrodinger's stakes. And I realized that that actually had some value and ended up writing it into the, into the, uh, text. Um, but the idea, and, and for some people, when they're first transitioning into this kind of game, they, they still want to make it a success or failure. They want to, they don't, they, and so when we're negotiating stakes, they, they have a hard time understanding that the two completely mutually opposed things could exist at the same time. But the whole key is that they don't. So if you let's go back to that pirate example, right? Break it down as simple as possible. You you took a prisoner, or or they blasted you out of the sky. Yeah. Um. Those neither one of those things has happened yet. We haven't made the play, and until we make the play, those two um, states exist um, like Schrodinger's cat in two possible forms: uh, alive or dead, or you know you're still in the air, or you've been blasted um, blasted out of the sky. Um, and it's not until after you make the play that one of those resolves as the way the narrative goes and then the narrative follows accordingly. And it, so I made that analogy in a sidebar in the game because I think it, it might help people understand sort of that, that moment of negotiating stakes as opposed to it existing in the, in the reality of the narrative. Definitely helps one make the connection there. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the, 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 the system, but we haven't, we've only, kind of briefly touched on the setting yeah, um, yeah sure um so i uh i'm really a setting guy i'm not really a mechanics guy i i like setting i write games because i like creating setting and i run games because i like i like feeling like we visited some some different kind of place the more fantastical the better sometimes and so um i really like the cue mechanics and i and i hope i've, I've stumbled into something that people also like that is, is different from what they've usually experienced, but it's more, it's more about the setting for me. Uh, and I think I'm trying to remember the word count. I think mechanics are about 22,000 words and the book as it stands now is, is, um, just over 90,000. So, uh, there's 70,000 plus words of setting in, in upwind. And, and this is where it gets hard to describe, right? If, unless someone is super patient and is willing to listen to me blather on, uh, it's, it's hard to get the pieces all in place in a coherent way. Hence that elevator pitch I offered. Right. But it, it's not supposed to be earth. It's not supposed to be a, a world like we are familiar with. There's not necessarily ever was a planet or is a planet. This concept of an endless sky in kind of all directions is just otherworldly and it's supposed to be. There's lots of sort of explicit comments in the setting that talk about the destruction of, of the ancient world, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was a planet that got blown up into these islands. Maybe these islands have always been and, and, um, the, the masters of the wind and the, the destruction of their, of their lost culture may have just destroyed what they had built, not destroyed a, a, a planet and turned it into these floating islands. Or maybe that's exactly what happened. Um, we leave that. I mean, though I know what I, I want out of it, we explicitly tried to keep that um, in the purview of the of the game master to to build their own stories around. But the end result is you've got this endless sky full of large islands, many of which can be you know a hundred miles across. Um, you know, they got their own mountains, their own lakes, and small seas, and forests, and deserts, and plains, and they're drifting around this endless sky at all different elevations. There's a sourceless glow from above. There's no sun. It's just a, a, a bright light from above. And the higher up you go, the more and more arid things become. The brighter it becomes, the hotter it becomes, and it becomes sort of a natural limit. You can't go up beyond a certain region called the arids, um, these desert highlands, desert skylands, desert floating islands, because it just gets too hot. The farther down you go, um, the more and more the light is blocked by the intervening islands, the more and more the clouds and the the, 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 the fogs and the squalls block out the light until it, it gets dim and you come to what's called the twilight frontier, where it's this sort of gray haze akin to twilight as we would know it. Um, you can see silhouettes and you can, you can tell that there are things there, but it's dark and cold and wet. 
Um, the creatures are different. The ecology changes. You go through the twilight frontier and beyond that, and you come to the dark. No light reaches here. It's freezing. It's, it's, and when it's not freezing, it's, it's extremely cold. Um, uh, and most water has turned to ice. Um, this is the realm of the children of the dark. And, um, so the kingdom is in the light. All of, all of the, the, well, let me back up a moment. The inhabitants of, of these, of the upper realms are, are called the kin. Um, and they make up a, a whole collection of principalities and nations, kingdoms, um, monarchies, republics, known as the convocation of kingdoms or the kingdoms in the light. Um, and they have contentious relationships uh, intentionally because that, you know, everyone loves factions in role-playing games. Uh, and each of these factions has different characteristics and that they lend to the characters from these nations. The, these contentious nations during, during their early days formed what's known as the Explorers Guild. It's an independent order uh, of which the, the Explorer Knights are sort of the key feature. Their duty is to maintain the peace uh, amongst the kingdoms in the light as well as to explore the remnants of the Masters of the Winds world collecting technology, lost technology uh, and lost knowledge and bringing it back to the kingdoms so that uh, the the kingdoms can learn from it and, and grow their own economies and develop their own technologies. Their other primary duty is to protect the kingdoms in the light from the children of the dark. So they are, as I said before, the, the reluctant warriors, but there's room in the, in, in there for them to be scholars and engineers and, and designers and technicians, uh, explorers, um, and they are the default campaign for the setting. So the default PCs are these um, explorer knights, highly trained, highly skilled individuals who have exceptional potential, exceptional supernatural abilities, um, and are recruited because of those to become to become explorer knights. That's that sort of the, the basic building blocks of the setting. We do a lot to develop the individual kingdoms. We do a lot to develop. There's a big section on the background of the of the knights themselves and and the things they have. The resources they have and the things that they're, they are expected to do. There's a lot of uh, sort of campaign hooks for them. There's a big section on the children of the dark. There's a large section on the creatures of the, of the skies. There's a, a lot about the strange geography itself to help game masters have a, a good handle on how to, to handle the setting, to, to, to describe the setting and play the setting for, for their campaigns. Um, really it's a lot of building blocks that decide describe the setting. And, and give the game master the tools they need to to present it in a way that the players can can run their characters through it and and effectively play in it. Okay, awesome. It it, it sounds like really really interesting. It definitely has a lot of potential for for full on campaigns of just exploring and seeing all sorts of like weird and strange like places and like creatures and, and things like that. So yeah, exploration is one of the main themes. There's lots of strange places to go, lots of strange things to see, lots of strange creatures and, and people to, to encounter in terms of the, the otherworldly intention. Uh, there are a few choices that were made on purpose. The word human is never used in the book. Instead, the word kin is mm-hmm. um, what we use. There are certain characteristics that imply they are, are in fact not human. Or, or, nor never were features of their, of their biology, their anatomy. That said, the intention is that they are human enough in their drives and motivation that characters can easily play them. Um, but we wanted it to be a world that didn't necessarily, if the moderator didn't want it to have connection to, to the world as we know it, or, or even traditional fantasy or sci-fi worlds as we, as we know them. A thing I noticed that, um, from the PCs as are, like, as, as they're written is they're all, they're highly trained. They have been doing this since birth. And my personal style of like GMing and like running games is that you're a normal person who has been thrown into a thing. Like, is that possible in this game? Oh yeah, or? it's absolutely possible. They, they haven't necessarily been doing it from birth, but they are recruited at a very young age. Like uh, as part of trying to maintain this as an otherly otherworldly realm, we, we had to come up and, and we have no sun or stars to tell time with. So we had to come up with a whole system of telling time. Right. So years and days and months don't exist, but we have equivalents uh, or we have, we have units that are used in the setting and then we give some equivalents so people can have a sense of how long they are. But, um, just, just throwing away the, the terminology and the conversions, um, the average knight is recruited probably when they're 
nine or 10 years old. Um, part of that was sort of the tropes of the, of, of anime, right? Tropes of studio Ghibli. They're all young heroes. They're kids and they're given crazy, huge responsibility and, and they're expected to live up to it. And that was one of the things I for sure wanted to keep included in the game. Um, but yeah, if you, if you play the default campaign, you, you are uh, a knight and you were trained from, from childhood and you went through the academy and you're part of what's called a boat crew. You graduate from the academy as part of a specific group. The intention behind that being it obviates the sort of random origins that a lot of playing groups seem to have for their characters. Oh, we met in a bar or, Oh, we just met on the road or we're caravan guards. Right. And there's no reason for them to really want to be together. This default idea of being in a boat crew, these are your best friends. They're, they're closer than, than siblings because you've been through all this crazy training with them. You know them better than you would your, any family members so that automatically your player table, your boat crew, um, has, has knowledge of each other, um, can rely on each other, trust each other. You can use that as the default starting point. That being said, we do give some, some guidelines on playing characters that aren't knights. It, it doesn't mean they're not going to be as powerful as knights, though it could, but you could certainly play any sort of game you wanted. Uh, and we give some guidance for that as well. You could be sky pirates. You could be agents of another government. You could be soldiers or scientists who were kept by their own nations or, or just for some reason are opposed to being knights. It's not like they're forced into this recruitment. It's not like they, they have to do it. And there are agencies and organizations and, and, um, other ways in which the players can can have a group of characters that have nothing to do with the guild. In fact, we even give some guidelines on playing Children of the Dark because I know there's going to be some group out there that wants to do that. <laughs> there's always someone who's super edgy. Yeah, yeah. It definitely sounds like you could, uh, alongside the knights kind of thing, you could definitely do sort of like the almost the, the sort of Robin Hood-esque kind of pirates that you see in like Castle in the Sky and, and things like that. Oh, absolutely, that. for sure. And there, there is also the opportunity, there, there's a part of, of night recruitment. If you have particular special abilities, you can be recruited even though you're not otherwise um, qualified. So you can have these sort of relatively normal people who have this one supernatural thing who are brought into the academy because of this one supernatural thing, which would be a great angle to play. You're otherwise sort of this, this bumbling incompetent who is, who's trying to keep up with these super supermen, you know, the every man. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Bob and I know what plants think. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Say someone goes to the, uh, goes to Kickstarter and backs it at a, uh, a uh, project at a level of um, actually receiving a book, which I think is, if I'm not mistaken, that's at the $55 level. Yeah, I think that's the first the first um, physical reward. Yeah. Are these? Uh, what are they going to be getting in this uh, with in this book here? What? Well, um, it's going to be full color. It's going to be it's going to be hardcover. Um, we are guessing two twenty-five to two fifty pages, probably somewhere in there. The artwork that you see on the Kickstarter page is done by um, James Stowe, and he's on board to do the entire book at this point. So it'll be a really consistent art style, and that and and uh, the the quality of we're we're doing offset printing, so it'll be a, a really high quality book. Beyond that, the actual stats um, we haven't really quite decided yet, and I think some of that will d- depend on the sort of outcome of the of the Kickstarter. But yeah. joining up with Nocturnal Media has been an incredible boon because of their production values and experience, and I think the book is going to be twice as beautiful as it would have been um, if it had just been us on our own. Um, so it, we're, I'm, my original goal was to have the book end up being a almost kind of a a, what call it, a a coffee table book, right? A pretty book that was something just fun to look at um, on its own merits rather than um, only if you were into playing the game. Uh, have you ever seen a, there's a book called, a game book called um, Doe, the Flying Temple, uh, Temple of the Flying Pilgrims. Have you ever heard of that oh. game? Oh uh, yeah, that's a, um, an evil hat game, right? Yeah, I think it was one of the first ones too. Um, I think it's called Doe, Temple of the Flying Pilgrims. And it's just a beautiful book. Uh, and it's kind of like a, a different format. Uh, it's, it's wider than it is tall and it's got this beautiful cover and this great sort of, um, animated style, um, illustrations and it's just beautifully laid out and, and, and very clean and, and crisp and, and easy to read. And I really wanted, uh, Upwind to look a lot like, like that. And we're kind of using that as a, as a target for, 
for what the physical book will look like. Are the maps that you mentioned earlier, are they like included in the book or are these separate documents? The, the map itself will be in the book, um, but the poster map, the, the stretch goal that we just broke today, I mean, it will be, if anybody, um, pledged at the level that gives them the, the physical stretch goals, they will get that with the book. It probably won't be in the book. It'll be, you know, be part of the package. Okay. Um, the book, the default book does not come with a poster embedded in it. Um, but the poster is at least at this point, if we go to you know, production for distribution later on, that may prove the, the way we go. But at this point, I think anybody that gets the physical book is also getting the physical stretch goals. So they'll get that in the package with it. But the posters will be um, a separate product that comes with the book. Okay, awesome. We've done this with a couple of our other guests, but we obviously, as sort of like a, a gaming podcast, we tend to focus on the GM side of mm-hmm. things. So, do you have any tips or recommendations or anything like that for both just sort of general, like game mastering, game moderating? Um, and do you have any particular tips for? Uh, game mastering within upwind yeah actually i give a lot of those tips for upwind in in the book itself obviously um with guidance particularly on making mistakes and uh with the campaign book we're writing we'll be providing a lot of those too i think the best thing a game master can do is be prepared it doesn't mean that you have to have you know you can be improv improvisational but you still need to be prepared right you have to have some ideas that you can present, some um, encounters that you can present, and a direction for the for the player. So be prepared. And the one that I that I that I always remind myself of every time I go into running a game is is be engaged. If you're up on your feet, if you're high energy, if you're talking to your players and keeping the challenges and 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 interesting bits always in front of the characters, you're going to keep your players really engaged and focused on the game. Um, and I think that. Of all the things that a game master can do, that's that's the most um, effective to having engaged players that are having fun. For Upwind specifically, try to make stakes that um, stretch the characters, that give them lots of additional challenges, that introduce new events, new rivals, that give them things that last out through um, the story, that enhance who their characters are becoming that create character development and future challenges for them. I love the stakes where, for example, let's go back to your, your pirate example. Let's say um, my stakes aren't that they blast you out of the sky. Let's say that they realize that you are knights and they, they flee, they, they dip into the clouds and you can't find them again, but they will be back. And this time they will ambush you. So that's a stakes that, you know, is hanging out there um, as players, your characters don't know it. But as players, it lends something to the to the future of the game, knowing that they're going to come back. It's kind of a meta foreshadowing um, and making stakes that do that kind of thing that put stuff out ahead of the players uh, is really a, a, an effective exploitation of the system. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Adam. If you want to. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was just filling out my, my upwind pledge right now. <laughs> Thank you. I, I meant to do it earlier, but I forgot my password. <laughs> Good job, Adam. Man, there's too many damn passwords in my life. I mean, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh God, a great to do and all that. It's just, it's been. <laughs> You know how it goes. Uh, Jeff, uh, thank you again for uh, interviewing with sure. us today. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. The, I think one of the coolest things that I'm – what I'm realizing about Kickstarter that I that I kind of – I guess I hoped for but didn't know if it was going to play out is how really it only works when everybody's involved. Uh, it is a community effort, right, um, okay. in, in a way that game production hasn't been in my in my past and i I just really dig that and the the whole podcasting scene is new to me too but i've done a bunch of these interviews now and and it just feels like everybody's involved and that's really fun i mean that's what games are right is you get get people together and get friends together and you do something fun and this whole process has become kind of an extension of that so i really appreciate you having me on and and being able to share your airtime and promote the game that's super valuable to the kickstarter but it's also just a blast to talk, talk with you guys Likewise, man. Glad to have you on. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> well, we started back in April and, you know, it's a tight knit community once you get, get rolling in it and everybody's super, super helpful. And, you know, yeah, yeah, we're, we're 
pretty close in with like the people at RPVR and a, a couple other uh, game developers and stuff like that. So it's it's just good to see everybody is there to help and support each other. Yeah, like it's. It, I always think the stakes aren't high enough for it to be to be any rivalries, right? Like it's just game, <laughs> yeah. it's just games. Yeah, that we're no, friends. Just games. Yeah. Nobody's making. Nobody's getting rich off of it. So let's just have fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Jeff, uh, again, thank you for joining of us. Jeff, where can people find you online? More places now that I'm, you know, part <laughs> of the whole social media thing. Uh, we, our, our website. Um, I'm. At least so far, I'm doing a pretty good job of keeping that updated and interesting. Um, you can go to uh, biohazardgames.us, and that'll take you to the site. And there's links there to the Kickstarter, and there's links to all these um, different downloads and artwork and, and and textual pieces about Upwind. And then, of course, Blue Planet and some other things, too. So um, it's definitely worth exploring. You can find me on Twitter at biohazardjeff. Uh, Facebook, of course, under Biohazard Games. And I think those are probably the three most active places to, to track me down. Awesome. Excellent. And you can find us, Roleplaying Exchange, at RP Exchange on Twitter. The Facebook should be facebook.com slash roleplaying exchange. Yep. Okay. We're always looking, and we're always looking for uh, comments, suggestions, reviews, anything like that. Yes. Um, our, our theme song is Critical Hit by Ghost Mice. You can check out uh, Ghost Mice and all sorts of funk, folk punk goodness at Planet X Records. Awesome. Folk punk, that's a new one. <laughs> um, so, well, from... Fuck, I don't even know how to finish this up now, so... <laughs> we'll just Good night, nice. everybody! <laughs> uh, <laughs> we didn't think this through, etc., etc. Not all fights are won by skill, some are won by luck. Don't ever give in You've got to keep on trying Till you lose or you win Cross your fingers, roll the die Wait with hope for the big 2-0 Cross your fingers, roll the die Let it go, let it go, let it go Let it roll, let it roll, let it roll, let it roll.